Well, welcome to Bayou City. I'm going to turn to the book of uh, Jonah. And as you're doing that, let the person on your right and left know again that you're glad they're here. Jonah, the Old Testament prophet. How many of you have been fishing before? Just show of hands. Been fishing before? Yeah. If you've been fishing even one time, then you've come back with a fishing story. You know, uh, if you've been more than one time, then you have more than one fishing story. I remember the very first time that I can remember going fishing. I went with a friend and, and his dad. We went to a little river in Missouri. And I don't remember what we caught. I don't rem- remember much about the experience is that I left my house with two shoes. And when I came home, I had zero shoes. That's what I remember from my first uh, fishing trip. But if you've been one time, then you have a fishing story. And as we're turning to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, we just assume that Jonah is a fishing story. Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the great fish. But the story of Jonah is not a story about a fish. Uh, The story of Jonah is not even a story about a man who ran. The story of Jonah is a story about God's heart for all people. And most of us have missed that as we've read the story of Jonah. Because God does have a plan. He does care. He does have a will. He wants glory from every group of people. You know, since the Tower of Babel in the beginning of Genesis, there have been groups of people um, in, in the world based on languages, based on dimensions, and there's a, there's a research company called the, the Joshua Project, and they say that there are 16,475 different groups of people around the world. They relate to each other in the same way. They have the same practices. Uh, they speak the same languages. And Jonah tells us today how we should and how we should not relate to the 16,475 gr- different groups of people. So a few things I would love for you to write down as we begin, just a few observations. Number one, God has compassion for all people. God has compassion for all people. If there really are 16,000 different groups around the world, then he loves, cares for, wants glory from all 16,000 different ones. This is what it says in chapter one, verse one. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee from Tarshish, Tarshish, uh, from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish and he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. So observation number one, God has compassion for all people. He says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And by this time, it had been the capital for about 100 years The events of Jonah are happening around 780 BC. So that's uh, almost 780 years before Jesus was born. And Jonah is to preach against Nineveh because their wickedness has confronted God. And, And we see from later on in the book that preaching against Nineveh is really an opportunity for grace. You know, he's sending Jonah to preach against the wickedness of Nineveh, but it's not just a message of doom. It's an opportunity 
for grace. You know, some of us feel like that's what God has been doing to us. He's just been preaching against us. And every time you come to church, it's do this different. And it just feels like God has you under his thumb right now. And you've been looking that at that as God is against you. But it may be that God is actually for you because he's giving you another opportunity for grace, just like he was the people of Nineveh. God has compassion for all people, even the Ninevites. See, it wasn't unheard of that God would use his own people to declare his glory and greatness and grace uh, among the nations. Psalm, 100, uh, Psalm 96 verse 3 says, Declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful works among all peoples. So it wasn't unheard of that someone would go and give an opportunity uh, for grace to a nation outside of Israel. But Nineveh just didn't sit well with people. These were wicked people. These were violent people. But God has compassion on all people. But that doesn't always feel right, does it? I mean, it feels right to say God has compassion on all people as long as we get to define who all people is. If, If all people are people who bless us, if all people who don't have anything to do with us, But really, all people means all people. It means people like Nineveh. But it's hard for us to imagine God having the same compassion for everyone that he has on us. Specifically, as he has on me. Our flesh and our human nature helps us to create a very me-centric faith. Where I just assume, I would not say this out loud because when I say it out loud, it doesn't sound true, but I just have this assumption that I am the center of all of what God is doing and everything that he's doing and everything that he wants to do in the world somehow orbits around me. And if it doesn't feel like it orbits around me, then I don't really have that much interest in it. Like for example, which book are you more likely to pick up? Um, Seven steps to knowing God's will for your life or seven reasons that Jesus died. I mean, honestly, if you're cruising through the Barnes and Noble, which book are you most likely to grab off the shelf? First of all, you're like, I don't read actual books anymore. I just get it downloaded straight into my brain from Twitter. But if hypothetically you were actually going to buy a book, which one are you more likely to buy? Seven steps to knowing God's will for your life. You think, yeah, no, that resonates for me. I want to know what God's will is for my life because I want to do God's will for my life. Or just, uh, uh, just a statement of facts of seven reasons why Jesus died. Obviously, all of us, including the pastor, is going to reach for the book that has to do with us because we have a very me-centric faith. And although we wouldn't say it out loud because we know it's not true, just our daily assumption is, is I am at the center of everything. I'm at the center of all things. So yeah, God has compassion on all people, but we just assume that he has compassion on us first. But it really does two things against us. Uh, uh, First of all, It's unhealthy. Uh, Second of all, it leads to discouragement. Because if we are at the center of all that God is doing, when we look at our lives and we look out, and it doesn't seem like God is doing very much. He's not winning. He's not helping us. He's not answering our prayers. Because we assume that we are at the center of everything, and we don't see God doing a lot. We just assume that he's not doing a lot. And that assumption sometimes leads some of us to then doubt his character. Well, God, if you're not answering my prayers and I'm at the center of everything, then I just assume you're not answering anybody's prayers, and then maybe you're just a God that doesn't really answer prayers. 
That's how a lot of people have ended up dropping out of church. Well, I came to church and, and then I, I made some requests and I was trying to do right and I was trying to balance the scales of the good God stuff and, and the, the bad stuff that I'm doing. And, and then, but I, I had a pretty big thing that I needed and he didn't come through and we just assumed that we're at the middle of everything. So then just assume that he, what's the point of going to church? If I'm not gonna be rewarded, I can't see the reward, then, then I just stop coming. And, and maybe some of you are on your way back from that because it wasn't happening for you. So we just assumed he was the kind of, God who doesn't really do those things anymore. He's a God who doesn't care. But we're not the center of everything. God has compassion on all people and, and we don't get to define the list of who all people are. He loves, he cares for, he has a plan for all 16,475 different groups among whom we are just one group. Second observation God uses his own people. So he calls Jonah, the son of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. So the call goes out to Jonah, who was a prophet to Israel from the town of Gath-Hefer. Some of you are looking to go on vacation this summer. There you go, Gath-Hefer. You know, he was not a prophet to Nineveh. He was a prophet to Israel, but God uses his own people to go to all people. We see that with the disciples. Jesus instilled in them right after the resurrection. I want you to go and make disciples of who? Of all nations. And then in Acts chapter one, that command is broken down a little bit more specifically and he gives it to him in three phases. He says, first, I want you to go to Jerusalem. That's where they were at that moment. Then I want you to go to Judea. That was the region around Jerusalem. And then he said, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. And so it's from home all the way to the ends of the earth. God is using his people. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 13. Some leaders of one of the first churches are there praying and Antioch. And as they're praying, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to set apart Saul, who will later become Paul, and Barnabas, because I have some work for them. And the work was to take the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to take it as far away as they possibly knew. And And that's what we see the rest of Acts is the Apostle Paul, who used to be Saul, moving around. Missionary journey one, missionary journey two, uh, and then a third missionary journey that uh, went through Rome and in to prison. God uses his own people, and he's using his own people right now. You know, we've all heard daily about the crisis in Syria. We've even sent teams to Jordan uh, to minister to these Syrian refugees from Bayou City because what's happening in Syria is the terrorists have come in and the people, when the terrorists get to their village, they have two choices. They can try to live through it or they can flee. And if the, the people in the, you're in the south, then you flee uh, towards uh, Jordan. And if you're in the north, then you flee towards Turkey. Well, when they get to Turkey, they get on boats. And that's the boats that you're seeing because those boats are taking them from Turkey to Greece because Greece is an open door right now. And from Greece, they can get up into the nations of Albania and Bulgaria, some of that former Soviet bloc, because there's an open door for them right now. And so what's happening is on the boats, it's dangerous. And you're seeing all these pictures once they get to Greece. We have a friend, Amanda and I have a friend who is working there in Greece where the refugees are getting off the boats. And we, we, we asked her, you know, tell us what it's like. And she said, the first thing that you need to know is God's people have to be there. 
God's people have to be there. We don't have any option. And we were like, well, why do God's people have to be there? And they said, because here is who else is there waiting on these Syrian refugees. Human traffickers are there. So literally, whenever these people are distraught and they're in need, these traffickers will come and trick them and then take them to places that they don't want to go and use them for things that they don't want to be a part of. The human traffickers are there. Uh, The organized crime is there of the former Soviet bloc and uh, Bulgaria and Albania and all those things that you've heard about in the movies. They are there looking to, to expand their organized crime among these refugees Um, uh, another group that's there is the terrorists. They left their home because of terrorists and terrorists are there in Greece looking to recruit disgruntled and frustrated people. And so she was telling us God's people have to be there because if we're not there, these are what their options are. God is still using his people. In fact, he's using us. We're sending a, a team to Greece this summer to be there when the refugees get off their boats. Maybe you have summer plans already, but maybe these plans are better than what you have because God uses his people to go to all people. He used Jonah to go to Nineveh. Next observation that I want you to write down. Our first instinct may be to run. Jonah chapter one, verse three. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down into it uh, to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Then the Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the vessel and stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. And the captain approached him and said, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. So the sailors, they're just throwing out lifelines to any God that they think might listen to them. Verse seven, come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we will know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So essentially they're throwing dice. And if your number came up, then they were gonna blame you for the problem that they were in. So they cast lots and the lots singled out Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country? What people are you from? He answered them, I am a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. I don't know if that was like admission on the boat. Uh, I'll take one ticket. Why do you want a ticket? I'm fleeing from God's presence. I don't know why he brought that up. I don't know if it just came up casually, but somehow they know this guy is running from the eyes of God. Then the men were even more afraid. What is this you've done? Because they knew they were, he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them so. Verse 11. So they said to him, what should we do to you to calm this sea that's against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. And he answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it may quiet down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this violent storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land but they could not because the sea was raging against them more 
and more. So they called out to the Lord, please, Yahweh, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. And they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging and the men feared the Lord even more and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows Then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah gets the word from the Lord, go to Nineveh. He goes in the opposite direction to Tarshish, which historians, archaeologists believe was was modern day Spain, which if you were making a map at the time, 480 BC, Spain was about uh, as far away as you could get, as they had record of. And, and more than that, Jonah knows that there are no Yahweh worshipers. There are no Israelites. There are no God-fearing people in Spain. And what he wants to do is he wants to get out from underneath the eyes of the Lord. We know this feeling. We know this feeling when we have made bad choices, when we are making a bad choice, we know it's not what God wants us to do. And we look over and glance to see our Bible. We look away. Whenever there's a prayer moment that's happening and you know, man, I have blown it. I don't, I shouldn't be in here. You figure out a way to get out of it. You know, somebody around you is praying and you're not feeling it. You just kind of look off in the opposite direction. Why do we do that? Because somehow in us, we believe that God's eyes are focused where there's God activity happening. But if God activity is not happening there, then he's just not paying attention. And that's Jonah's heart. Jonah's heart is... I'm sure he knows everything and owns everything, but I'm gonna try to get as far away as possible. I'm gonna try to get where there's no Yahweh stuff happening, so maybe he won't glance over here in Tarshish in Spain. Maybe he will just let me be. But he ran. And why did he run? Well, first of all, a prophet from Israel going to preach to Nineveh was gonna make him very unpopular. Nineveh was awful. They were the worst of the worst. They were violent. They were wicked. They were awful. And so if he's going to preach to them, which maybe is an opportunity for them to respond to grace, they're not going to like that. His countrymen are not going to like that. The other reason that he doesn't want to go is he himself does not like the Ninevites. And we're going to see that in just a second. Also, normally when prophets in the Old Testament would predict doom on another nation, they would do it from the safety and comfort of Israel. It's like uh, I went to the Final Four last night and they have sections of fans that are coming from New York, Syracuse and North Carolina with UNC and uh, Villanova from Philadelphia and Oklahomans are all there and they're all sitting there. So you can imagine it would take, you know, one level of courage if you're an Oklahoma fan to stand up in the middle of Oklahoma fans and denounce the Villanova fans. But it would be a whole nother level of courage to get up out of your Oklahoma seat, walk over to the Villanova section, stand up and denounce the Villanova fans. That's a whole nother level of courage, right? It's easy to predict doom. It's easy to be tough from the comfort of your own people, but that's not God's call to Jonah. It's not just speak this message against the Ninevites. It's go to Nineveh, get up and go to Nineveh. And he doesn't want to go. And ultimately, that's what it boils down 
for us today. If God is uh, asking for five volunteers, five families, five singles, five people to go to move to Africa today, um, honestly, you know, we're, most of us are not going to go because we do not want to go. You know? And so we, you know, some of us will, we've been in church enough, we know we'll have to fake the praying about it, you know. I don't know, let me pray about it, which is like, I'll stall, I'm gonna stall until five other people grab the invitations. Let me pray about it. Some of us wouldn't even pray about it. We would just try to get out to our car as fast as possible, unnoticed. Because ultimately, that's what it boils down to is we just don't want to go. If God is sending out long-term people, most of us just don't wanna be those long-term people. But you don't get to decide whether the call of the Lord lands on you. You don't get to decide that. You don't get to sign up for that. It just lands on you. Then your choice is, will I obey or will I run? And, and most of us are running when that call lands on us. As you know, uh, America and churches of America are sending out long-term Christian workers. Long-term means I'm selling my stuff here and I'm packing my bags, I'm packing everything that I own and I'm moving someplace and that's gonna be my address for a while, whether it's a couple of years or four years or just on into eternity. Long-term means I don't have another address at home. This is my new address. American churches are sending out long-term Christian workers out into those 16,475 groups of people at the same pace that we did in 1985, sending out the same number. Essentially, it's been a flat number. At the same time, the globe's population has added 2 billion people plus. So there are more people than have ever existed on planet Earth, 7 billion. But we are still sending out the same amount of workers that we needed when the Earth's population was just 4 billion. And you look around and you wonder, well, why is that happening? Well, it's happening because of the same reason I'm not going and the same reason you're not going is most of us honestly have never thought about going. We've left somebody else to come and grab the invitations and hope they would faster than us. Fourth observation that I want you to see, you never know who will respond. You never know who will respond. Jonah chapter two is Jonah's prayer in the midst of the whale. Jonah chapter three, the whale has vomited him up into dry land. Um, So if you disobey, God doesn't always send a Bentley to come and bring you back to a place of obedience. Sometimes you have to ride in the belly of a whale. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up, went to Nineveh, according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely large city, a three-day walk. So that says that if you started on one side of Nineveh, it would take you three days to walk to the other side. And so historians think that that's probably about 50 miles. That's the same exact distance that it takes to get from the center of the woodlands to the center of Clear Lake. Actually, that's 51 miles. So you can imagine walking from the woodlands all the way down 45 till you get 
to Clear Lake. That's how big Nineveh was. So essentially it is the size of Houston. Now we know the population is much smaller. It's only 120,000 people at the end of uh, this book that God tells us how many people were living there. So massive massive amounts of space for a relatively small number of people. But he's walking, he's walking, he's walking. He walks for one day. And then it says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. This is his message. The men of Nineveh believed in God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth and set in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh by order of the king and his nobles. No man or beast, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence he is doing. Who knows, God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do to them, and he did not do it. You never know when you go how people respond. Now, Jonah honestly is probably not thinking that he's gonna go into Nineveh, he's gonna preach this message, and they're gonna do what he says they're gonna do. More likely, what Jonah thought was he's gonna go into Nineveh, he's gonna preach this message, and they're gonna kill him. That was more like the Ninevites. He wasn't expecting that they would actually listen to him. And listen, it says that everyone repents. The people repent, the king repent. They even make the animals repent. Did you notice that? The animals, the livestock, they don't get to drink anything during the fast. And the animals have to wear the sackcloth as well. What they're doing is they're stripping off all of their ornaments to just say, we're broken on the inside and we want to look and dress according to that brokenness. And Jonah honestly is surprised that they reacted that way. But you never know. When the call of God lands on you and you go, you don't know how people are going to respond. I spent a couple of weeks in Africa one time and we camped out. Uh, that was our living uh, experiences. We camped out in tents and there was a big yard essentially in Africa. And, and uh, in the morning we would wake up and we would go to these different villages. And sometimes the roads would be so bad that we'd have to walk to the villages. We couldn't take a, a car or a Jeep or anything like that. And we would get into these villages and the whole village would have uh, assembled already. They knew where they were coming and we had prepared some things and they had prepared some things. And part of our program was to do just dumb stuff. Like we played red light, green light with an entire village village. I don't know if you've ever done that. You, you, you don't speak the same language. So what we did was you'd hold up a, a red t-shirt for red light and we'd hold up a green t-shirt uh, for green light and we'd play a game and then we would sing songs and then they would sing songs. And then my role in the whole experience was to tell the simple story of Zacchaeus and use the story of Zacchaeus to share the gospel and give people the opportunity to be safe. So of course I'm doing this all through an interpreter and I'm talking about Jesus coming through the town and I'm talking about Zacchaeus, he's being short and he climbs up into the tree and Jesus comes by, stops and looks up at him, says, I wanna go to your house. So I'd say a little bit, the interpreter would say a little bit and I'd say a little bit. An interpreter. And when we get to the end of the story, I'd worked out with the interpreter. Listen, when we go to give these people an opportunity to commit their life to Jesus, just as Zacchaeus committed his life to Jesus, why don't you do it? That way there's no uh, breakdown in you know, communication with the whole interpreting thing. Why don't you just take it from there? So I finish my part and I step off to the side and the interpreter steps up and then he just 
finishes out the story and he gives people opportunity. I assume, I can't tell what he's doing, but I'm assuming this is what he's doing. And all of a sudden, a ton of people stand up. Like an abnormally large amount of people just stand up to their feet all of a sudden. And he's talking some more and they're standing up and he's looking at them and, and they're looking at him and we're looking at each other. And it's like more than half of the village right there standing up. So he finishes out the whole morning experience and we go to him later and we're like, what were all the people standing up? It's like, no, those were the people that they heard your story. They heard about Jesus. They want to believe. They want to, they believed in Jesus right there. I thought that was the whole point of of coming here that these people would stand up. (laughs) I'm just like, you did it right, right? Like that seemed like a lot of people to... You didn't say like who's hungry, who's ready to go, who thought this took too long. No, he says, they just believed in Jesus. That's what you're praying for. That's why you came. That's what happened. Got up the next morning, same thing. Hundreds, hundreds. By the time we left, 500 plus people had stood up to say, I, I want to believe in Jesus. In like six days of ministry, and it's sad to say, I, I was shocked. I've been used to an experience where it was just, just randomly, just maybe one or two people were interested in the message of Jesus. But listen, you, you never know when you go how people are going to respond. We might say, yeah, well, but there's so many different governments around the world. They're anti-God, they're anti-Jesus, they're just anti-everything. That's true, but notice Nineveh's repentance and change didn't start with the king. It didn't start with the government. It started with the people. The people repented and word got back to the king. It always starts with the people, never starts with the governments. Did you know that before 9-11, before September 11, 2011, in Afghanistan, there was only known 17 believers in Jesus who had come from a Muslim background? In the whole nation, only 17 people before 9-11 uh, who had come from a Muslim background to believe in Jesus. And right now, the number is more than 10,000 people. Under the regime of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, it was only known of a few hundred followers of Jesus. And now there are more than 53,000 people in Iraq who are gathering today, just like we're gathering because they follow Jesus. We don't know how people are going to respond and that's not our job to decide ahead of time. Our job is to not get on the boat to run. Our job is to go in the direction of Nineveh. And then the last thing that I want you to write down, it's about more than our passports. It's about more than our passports. Jonah chapter three, verse 10. Then God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do to them. And he did not do it, chapter four, verse one. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, 
and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? So this is ultimately why Jonah got on the boat to not go to Nineveh. This is why he's now pouting outside of the city because his heart was not aligned with God's heart. God wanted to give grace to the Ninevites and Jonah wanted vengeance. God's heart was grace. God's heart was mercy. God's heart was compassion. His heart was punishment. His heart was what they're due. His heart was justice. His heart was vengeance, revenge. What if we started reading the news as more than just the news? What if we, in fact, stopped reading the news as news and we started reading the news as need? So when we read about X place around the world and something happened and it was awful and these people are starving and there's need here and this government is a dictator and what if we stopped reading it as just information and you and I filtered it through, hey, maybe some of us should go there. What if our news was not just updates? What if it was marching orders? What if the next time you read about some group of people suffering around the world, your response and my response was not just, huh, another country, another day, another problem. But I wonder if if we should figure out how to get there. I mean, somebody's got to go. It's always the answer. Always the answer is more Jesus in that place. That's always the answer. And how can Jesus get into that place if Jesus' people are not willing to go? And why would we not go? We would not go because maybe our hearts aren't aligned with God's heart. When God reads the news, he doesn't read it as updates. He reads it as something else. And it says in verse 5, Jonah left the city and sat down east of it and he made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. This confirms what we've grown to know about Jonah this morning is Jonah is a terrible human being. He's not a terrible human being because he, he, he ran from his calling. A lot of us have done that. He's a terrible human being because after he preached the message of June, he went out and found a seat to watch to see if it would happen. He pulled out his lawn chair to watch his city be destroyed. Then God appointed a plant and it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Then Jonah greatly was greatly pleased with the plant. And when the dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, he replied, it is right. I am angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in the night and perished in the night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left and as well, many animals? 
Jonah is a terrible person, which is good news for us today. It means no one is disqualified. No one is disqualified today. You're like, well, I'm really not godly enough to be on a team that welcomes refugees in Greece. If you're not gonna pull out a lawn chair out in Hempstead to watch the city of Houston burn today, you're a better person than Jonah. You know, what happened to Jonah happens to me, happens to us. And honestly, it's, it's the reason most of us today will just dismiss this message as soon as we get into the parking lot. Because God's gifts have come, become so important to us that we would use his gifts as excuses to not obey his calling. Our opportunities have become our obstacles. See, in, in this country, even if you are poor in this country, you are rich in the world. And all of us today, have opportunity to have a comfortable home, even if your home is not anything to brag about today, even if it's the smallest apartment in Houston, comparatively to the 16,475 different groups around the world, your home is comfortable. We all have the opportunity to have a comfortable home, but whenever you go to take on the calling of God, you might go to a place that's not that comfortable. I was in South Asia once, and uh, it was bitter cold in this particular season. We were staying at a hotel. And listen, staying at a hotel is great. If I, I stayed in a tent in Uganda, Africa, a hotel is a big time upgrade. There's not snakes crawling around the ground and, and where you go to use the toilet. The, the, the room had a toilet, so it was a win there. So uh, I'm thinking this is gonna be great. It's not a five-star place, but it's a place and it has a roof. So I was looking forward to it. And the great place about this, the great thing about this hotel in India is they made great French fries. And I was hungry for French fries. I've been gone away from home for a long time. So I was looking forward to it. The first night we realized there's no heater in the home except for uh, in the room, except for a small little space heater that's literally about this big. My roommate and I, a good friend, um, we couldn't sleep under the covers because we pulled back the covers, which is a terrible mistake. You want to turn the lights off, then just get into the covers and take your chances. You don't want to look at it ahead of time. But we did. So we were like, we're not getting under the covers. So we slept in all of our clothes. You're thinking like the clothes you wore that day. No, literally all of our clothes and all of our coats because it was so cold. And essentially we cuddled. I mean, we didn't wrap arms around or anything, but we were next to each other with this little heater blowing us in the face because that was how bad the room was. And then the shower, I'm not going to gross you out, but I want to gross you out. The shower drain wouldn't actually drain. So by the time you finished your shower, you were actually taking a bath, which is awesome. And we've heard that story and I just told you that story. And, but God's given us an incredible opportunity to have a comfortable life and a comfortable home. So when we heard that, we think, well, maybe I don't want to go. And the opportunity becomes the obstacle. God's given us an incredible opportunity in Houston, Texas. We do two things well. We do people well here and we do food well here. We have great food, best food in the whole world. You go around the world, get some stamps in your passport. In Jesus' name, you don't know what kind of food you're gonna eat. I've eaten rabbit. I've eaten goat. I've eaten Honduran beanie weenies. I just wanna describe it, Honduran beanie weenies to you. It's like if you took the sauce from Chinese food and added a bunch of ketchup, then boiled a bunch of hot dogs, and with their juice, put them all together. That's Honduran beanie weenies. And you've heard that story before. You've heard about snakes and you've heard some urban legend about brains and you've heard all of that. And 
than you think about good company barbecue. You think about the cheddar biscuits at Red Lobster and the greatest thing that God has ever made, Shipley's Donuts. And you think, oh, I can't. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And our opportunity becomes our obstacle. And then the primary reason, if we just would be honest, if we just would throw all our cars other, honestly, the reason most of us would not consider this a message for us today is because of our family, because of our friends, because of the people we love, and we can't bear to think being away from them. And, you know, and that's real. You're going to have to wrestle with that. And that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But I do just want to speak into it just a little bit. I think most of us are working under this assumption that once we die from this earth and we we, we just kind of start over in heaven, blank slate. And we might recognize some people from our former past, but we got to start all over the relationships. Like we become so heavenly that we're not funny anymore. And we become so heavenly that we don't need one another anymore. And we become so heavenly that we won't care about one another anymore. And all we care about is singing worship songs forever. And our family is going to kind of be meaningless. And, and I just don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, the disciples and Jesus worked under the assumption the whole time that their relationship did not end with his ascension. There was going to be a reuniting and it wasn't just a starting over like, hey, you look vaguely familiar. What was your name? My name's Peter. Oh yeah, my name's Jesus. I feel like we maybe met before, but no, they were going to know each other. They were just going to continue their relationship on. You're like, well, that's Jesus and the disciples. But in the Old Testament, King David, when one of his sons dies, he's like, I'm going to go and be with him one day. So honestly, this moment right now is not your only chance to be with your family. But this is our only chance to put stamps in our passport because 16,475 different groups of people need to know the name of Jesus. This is our only chance. That's not in heaven. Your family, by God's grace, will be in heaven and you will know them and you will love your mom and you will be mothered by your mother and you will be fathered by your father and you will know your brothers and sisters and you will continue on that relationship. But this is our moment to go. This is our moment to go. And it will be tough. And it will be sad. You know, I live away from my family. My family all lives in Missouri. And there's a big difference between Missouri and Afghanistan. But still, I love my mom and dad and sister and her husband and my nieces and nephews as much as any person on planet Earth. And it's hard to be away. I have one cousin who got rebellious and moved two hours away. And then it's me way down here in Houston. But this is where God has called me and this is where I want to be. But what comforts me on those days when they're all assembling for birthday parties and I'm not there, when I'm not there for Christmas or on my birthday, that that this is not our only chance to be family. In fact, we'll be family forever and ever and ever and ever. But this is my only chance to stand on this stage week after week and tell you that there's one name above every name. Don't let the opportunities that God has given us become our obstacles from the calling that he's also given us.
And then it just ends abruptly. Jonah chapter four. He ends with the question, verse 11, should I not care? This is God speaking about the great city of Nineveh. And then it just ends, should I not care? There's no answer. And so we get to answer for Jonah today. Should God not care about the city? We answer, yes, of course he should care. Of course he should care about Nineveh. Of course he should care about Syria. Of course he should care about Africa. Of course he should care about Indonesia. Of course he should care about the Philippines. Of course he should care about Iraq. Of course he should care. The question then is, will we also care? Will we also care? Now I love what it says in chapter three. Then verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up go. So Jonah got up and went. I believe today that the word of the Lord is coming to somebody. Get up and go. You're like, I don't know where to go. He didn't put a name on it. He didn't do for you the benefit uh, that he did for Jonah. Go to Nineveh. But you're feeling in your heart, get up and go. Our only option should be So they got up and went. Let's pray. God, we align our hearts with you today. And we know that you don't need us to go and rescue the world but you use your people and we are your people. So if the call lands on us today, then we want to respond. Plain and simple. We want to respond. Our heart is with your heart today. And if your heart is with 16,000 plus groups of people around the globe, then our heart is with 16,000 groups of people around the globe. And where it's not so, make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.